This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Saika Chaudhary, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management here at Wharton. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Dr. Michael Jaff, who is globally recognized as an expert on vascular medicine. Dr. Jaff became president of the Newton Wellesley Hospital in Massachusetts in 2016. Previously, he served as the inaugural Paul and Phyllis Fireman Endowed Chair of Vascular Medicine and as medical director of the Fireman Vascular Center at Massachusetts General Hospital since 2004. Dr. Jaff is also professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the founder of VASCOR, the Vascular Ultrasound Core Laboratory, which is the largest of its kind in the United States. Dr. Jaff, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you for that introduction. It's great to be here with you. It's wonderful to have you because healthcare is something we care a lot about. The first thing I want to ask you, just to get our, our listeners situated here, is we know what doctors do, but oftentimes people spend less time thinking about the leaders of various medical institutions, including hospitals such as yourself. What does your role look like? Well, I, I'd start off by saying that uh, I still see patients, so part of my role is continuing to practice my craft, the thing that I kind of went to school for and <laughs> dedicated my life. The rest of the time, I think, is really thinking about how to make healthcare more accessible for my community, how to make healthcare easier for people to integrate with so that they can get what they need when they want it and it feels good to get it. Mm -hmm. And actually to invigorate the people who commit their professional lives to the craft. So the doctors, the nurses, the administrative folks, the support staff who keep the engine running, how do we keep them joyful? How do we keep them focused on their mission uh, at a time when tumult is the common theme? So that's what I do during the day. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great mission, and and I want to emphasize and underscore that you know there's a there's a mission that you yourself started out with that uh, everyone who's in the profession you know started out with, and and really that was their motivation to get into this perhaps, and then later, sometimes you know we get caught up in everything else that happens around the healthcare system, so it's very refreshing to hear that you're focused on the mission and to make it easier, give access, and provide great healthcare, but of course. Make sure the providers are also motivated to do the same and remember what they're in the business for. Now, we often criticize the healthcare system nowadays, basically saying that, you know, it's bloated, it's expensive, it's unsustainable. Yes, especially in the United States, it produces some good outcomes because there's expertise like perhaps nowhere else in the world. But at the same time, it's also very expensive and perhaps outcomes at the general level are not as strong. But... People like you are at the forefront of thinking about what's good about the system, what could be perhaps changed or modified, and you've really made a name by being a pioneer in trying new healthcare delivery systems and approaches. Tell us a little bit about that. I, I think many of the criticisms that have been levied against healthcare are earned, quite frankly. <laughs> and so to accept the status quo means that that I've basically accepted that nothing really can change, and I can't do that. Because at the end of the day, my patients need care. 
Yeah. We all want care when we need it. And to make the system too expensive, too hard to navigate, uh, just doesn't seem right. So it all centers around the purpose of your program, thinking about innovation and what's innovation in healthcare. In a community hospital like the one that I'm working in, most people don't equate innovation. They think innovation happens at the big powerhouse academic medical centers like Penn, for example, a mm -hmm. great uh, historic institution. What I would argue is that innovation isn't necessarily about the next app, the next toy that you have in your pocket or on your desk. <laughs> it's thinking differently about how we can deliver care so that patients get what they want when they want it and where they need it. And that requires out-of-the-box thought. It requires the ability to give people license to think differently, to raise concerns, to come up with ideas, no matter how small, that could lead towards that end game of thinking differently about delivery of care. So one of the first things I did was I put innovation in the job description of someone in leadership in the hospital. I said, your job is to think every day mm -hmm. about how we can innovate delivery of care differently. That allows us to start using the term. So people start talking about innovation. They ask, what's a community hospital doing innovating? And we start getting people who raise their hands and say, can I learn more about this? And with that becomes the groundswell of curiosity. Once you start getting people curious and you start looking at examples of things that just don't work, then you start thinking about people saying, gee, I have an idea that in my job I've never had a chance to talk to anybody about. This is the groundswell of innovation, and that's what we're doing here. Fascinating. I, I really want to probe into this a little bit deeper. So you've kind of outlined the what and the how, and we'll get to the how um, you're doing this uh, a bit more in a minute. But what are some examples of the outcomes of these processes? In other words, how have you changed, for instance, some ways of delivering healthcare? I'll give you two examples, one that we're well into and the other one that's kind of on its way. So let's take a condition that is um, an important one for just about anybody who's listening, anybody who talks about healthcare. Let's talk about breast cancer, mm -hmm. the most common cancer in women, there's nobody around who doesn't know someone who went for a screening mammogram and had something and was worried about it until they knew that everything was okay. So we all have women's health centers that do screening mammography. And every patient who walks in that door is managed the same. You're here for your mammogram. Fill out this form, have a seat, we'll call your name, You'll come in and get this mammogram, which is an impersonal, cold, not particularly comfortable test, and then you'll wait to hear from someone. Well, the truth of the matter is, there are people, like my wife, for example, who loves to just come in, get the test, leave, and send me a letter. But not everybody's like that. Mm -hmm. There are people who lose sleep for weeks leading up to their appointment. By the time they come in, They've almost convinced themselves that something bad's going to happen. They're scared by the unknown. They're scared by the experience. And all they want is a friendly face, a kind voice, a moment of calm. That's not the same as the person who just wants to come in and get the test and go. Sure. Then there's somebody who wants to come in, get the test, and would love to wait for the results. Like, I'd like to know that day 
What did my test show? Well, not everybody's going to want to do that. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we started thinking about what these patients want. And so we went and did focus groups. We went out and talked to people who had had mammograms done at other hospitals, had mammograms done at our hospital, had never had a mammogram before. And we learned three different types of patients, similar to what I just described. Mm-hmm. Well, we figured, well, let's see if we can handle them differently. And so we managed them differently. We actually set up three lines in our screening mammography area, and we described in a very simple way each of the profiles of the people who might line up in line A, B, or C based on which one of those types of patients they are. If you're one of the people who's been worried sick about this, you'd go into a line where you were handed a box, and in the box were some simple things like an MP3 player with soothing music, um, uh, some uh, eye goggles that would allow you to do some virtual reality uh, stress management. Mm. Um, we did some things about hand lotion and hand cream and certain smells. The other people who wanted to doing this in the middle of their workday who needed a place to work on their iPhone or plug in their laptop to do some emails while they're waiting. We had a business area that we developed and piloted that people could use to plug in and get onto our guest network and do some work. And then we had a throughput, fast throughput group for the group that just wanted to come get their test and leave. Well, you know what? We learned a lot from this. One of the best things we learned is that we were overwhelmingly taken by the fact that people said it's amazing that you're even asking us yeah, what we think about this. I can imagine. So that's empowered us to change our waiting area, to think about what's the environment like when people come in to get this. It's allowed us to think differently about physicians talking to patients about results and how do you do that in a more empathic way? How do you make the environment less nerve-wracking? That's been a complete transformation, not only for patients, but for the people who work there who feel empowered to make a difference. So that's an example of one thing that's well on its way. Mm-hmm. The other example that I think everyone will relate to is coming in to have an operation. Can there be a more stressful thing than that? Even if the operation is for something that you can't wait to get done. So let's say you've got a sore knee you can't keep playing the sport you want to play, and you need to get your cartilage taken care of. And once you get it done and you rehab from that arthroscopy, you're going to be back on the field. right? That's an exciting thing, but still it's nerve-wracking. We've done a similar thing where we've profiled patient types based on how much do they know about the experience they had to have to have and how much confidence do they have in their ability to advocate for themselves. And as a result of that, we developed a pathway that allows us to profile patients with them. They make the choice about what type of patient they are. And then we communicate with them even well before they come for their procedure Mm -hmm. to talk about information, where to park, where to go. Here's pictures of the people you're going to see. In addition, at each step along the way, once they come, everybody knows that this patient self-selected that, gee, they don't have a lot of experience with this, they're really nervous, and they're not exactly the most outspoken. So we give them the freedom to ask questions in a less stressful environment, less under the gun from time. It's made a huge difference. In addition, we took that same team, our team of employees, and brought them to have an analogous experience. So what's it like in a different industry that deals with lots of different people? We went to the airline industry and spent the day behind the scenes 
with an airline that focuses on customer service and took some of those ideas and brought it back here. So now, if somebody's delayed Mm -hmm. or an unforeseen event, or the family member's worried because they haven't heard about their patients, their loved one's operation results, we've got a care card that anyone on the team is empowered to bring out that's got all sorts of stuff from reading materials to music to food to all sorts of stuff that allows them to take their mind off of things. And that empathy, that ability to show that we actually care for the experience that they're having, we're already getting resounding results. So these are just some small examples of things we're working on. I I love what I'm hearing, and you're clearly focused on the patient experience, doing a lot of things that we at business schools also like to look at. In particular, what resonated with me is the idea that, you know, you can learn from other industries. And I think every sector um, should really do that because there are many things that we think are novel in our sector, but at the same time, other industries have gone through or go through. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, though, is how do you orchestrate this? So have you formed, you, you touched upon it earlier, but have you formed teams to focus on innovation, uh, which are separate, or do they comprise current staff, such as doctors and nurses and so forth, who are, you know, w- willing to step forward and, and take these responsibilities on additionally? And is there anything in terms of incentives that they get beyond the satisfaction, which is important enough? Yeah, great question. So in a time when the environment is tough and, uh, you know, there's not a huge margin to play with, mm-hmm. It's hard to justify adding a whole lot of people for something that's kind of in the ether a bit. Luckily for me, when I came here, the organization had a core team of process improvement folks already focused on kind of how to think through the lean process. That's kind of the term that they used. And so I tried to expand their horizon. So I brought them through some design, human design thinking training. Mm-hmm. I gave them a chance to participate in some coursework and thought as we went along on this, gee, maybe we could expand the scope of this group to become the innovation experience team. And we ended up getting a lot of traction. They viewed this as a huge career advancer for them. The institution, who had already started seeing some positive outcomes from this empowerment of innovation thought, saw that there was now going to be a team focused on bringing this type of thought across the organization, so not just living in women's health or in ambulatory surgery. And so we've now got this core group that we've colloquially termed internally the Department of Tomorrow, which is focused on specifically the things you and I are talking about. Great name, by the way, Department of Tomorrow. I, I love that name. I think uh, you, you seem to very, uh, be a very creative person. We'll come to that as well. One of the things that you touched upon right now is many organizations uh, tend to be very siloed. And I think having people come across and be able to work across those boundaries is really important. So you seem to have given them a mechanism for doing so. The other piece that you touched upon, which really resonates, is the mindset issue. When we think about any organization, whether corporate or otherwise, like we're describing with your hospital, oftentimes it's the mindset and the background, which is the hardest to change. And then subsequently, of course, the the actual processes that we uh, invoke. What have been the challenges that you have faced in doing this? You make it sound very easy, and I can see from your ways that you're very personable and affable, and you can be very persuasive, but it couldn't have been easy for you to initiate this. It's not even easy today. So, <laughs> um, 
I would say that this is kind of one day after the next. It's talking about it. It's getting other people to start talking about it, who get infected with the concept of thinking differently about health care, feeling as if they could have an influence. Uh, and I'm talking not about the people who report directly to me. I'm talking about the important folks who serve the food, who clean the rooms, who transport the patients, without whom I'd struggle to run this place. These people are also feeling as if they have opportunities to make a difference. Those things demonstrate positive examples of outcomes that I then talk about and others can talk about. But I can tell you, I've got a long way to go. I mean, this is really a different way of thinking, particularly in a community hospital setting, surrounded by some of the largest, most powerful academic institutions in the country. And so uh, it might sound easy, but it is, it is uh, all day, every day. Yeah, I can imagine that. And your passion's there. Now, have you been able to leverage something from one of those large institutions and being part of Harvard Medical School into this community hospital? Well, we are part of uh, Partners Healthcare, which includes Mass General Hospital and the Brigham. So we already have this tremendous opportunity to scale innovations that have been developed at these large academic medical centers. Yeah, But at the same time, there are things that we can do here purely from a scale and scope opportunity that they can't really do. So you mentioned earlier on very perceptively that a lot of what we're doing is around patient experience. I should tell the audience that nothing starts and stops before we make sure that we're doing the best we can. So from a quality standpoint, from an outcome standpoint, that's the first bar that's got to be crossed. Once we work on that, which we do every day, then I think the patient experience is what's going to discern us in the marketplace and give us an advantage. So you're right. That's what we focused on. Is the cost side important to you, or how does it factor in? So on the, on the easy answer, mm-hmm. all of us know in any experience we have in our lives that when you walk into any store and the person working there is unhappy in their job, you don't feel quite as warm and fuzzy. <laughs> you right. get the right service. You don't feel quite welcomed. The coffee's not quite as good, right? We all know that. It's the same thing here. People really, we work hard to let them know that they're important to us, that they're important to each other. That's a daily message that we play through. So we hope that that will allow us to increase our volume, to operationalize our experiences, and to help meet our margins so that we can do the things we need to do. So cost and outcomes all kind of tie in. And in this current world that we're in, it's just the reality of how it is. Yeah, and I, I ask this very much conscious of the fact that the larger mission and the care part is, is of course, paramount, like you also described. And then there's this other part, which is, okay, how is this going to be sustainable economically? You know, frankly, we face it too, you know, and in the education space, you know, you're in that space as well at the medical school. And uh, even at our levels here at Penn, at Wharton and so forth, you know, education is so expensive, but, you know, having the best pedagogical approaches, the world's best experts, being able to give experiences is paramount. And sometimes that's not perfectly efficient because we're not packing our classrooms to 100% capacity and only offering uh, a limited number of classes, but we'd like to give the offerings that the students would want. And it's always a tricky thing balancing these things. You're absolutely right. And And oftentimes, uh, what I've found is just being transparent about the discussion. 
you know, oftentimes people say, well, healthcare is a business and that makes it cold and calculated. Actually, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. As I told you, I'm still seeing patients. It's still my core value in this whole field. But you got to keep the lights on, right? You got to be able to fund the mission. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. I, I want to come um, and, and ask you something. Do you have much experience in emerging markets by any chance? Oh, that's funny you would ask. So before, <laughs> before I took this, before I came to Newton Wellesley, I was at Mass General for 12 years. And in addition to running the Vascular Center, I was actually responsible for expanding, uh, among other things, international health care. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in this. But I certainly do understand through clinical research that I've done in 60 countries around the world and by studying markets from a healthcare delivery standpoint, I have some exposure to it. Yeah, and I ask you because I had a sense you have vast experience. And, you know, one of the interesting things when you go out of uh, context and go to a different place is their challenges, of course, are very different in terms of volumes, uh, you know, high, low margins, but very high volumes. And I'm wondering whether we can leapfrog and bring some ideas back from those markets. So it's A, it's a market to expand to, but on the other hand, one can also perhaps learn some things on how to do things differently, and that might be another place where another laboratory for studying very different practices, some of which might be applicable here. Oh, I totally agree. There's a lot to learn from markets in which the populations of patients seeking healthcare for chronic illnesses is almost staggering to imagine, and yet they find a way. Um, and they find a way even despite the cost. They find a way despite the emerging technologies that become so expensive but are so life-saving. And so you're right. There's a ton to learn. Wonderful. I want to ask you now, you're obviously a very creative person. Both sides of the brain work very effectively and efficiently in bringing these new ideas to bear. And uh, I do understand part of that can be explained by the fact that you're also a lifelong musician. And how has this influenced you? <laughs> you, you, uh, you must have read something wrong on Google about me. Um, so I was, uh, I was, in fact, I studied music in college. Uh, my hope was to become a professional musician. You can see that didn't quite work out. Um, however, it's a, uh, a real avocation of mine. It's a passion of mine not only listening to music, studying music, but singing, uh, playing piano, things like that matter. And, and uh, I also think that it tells people about a different side of you that they might not normally see. Yeah. And so um, I've done something here that people think is crazy, and I'll just tell you straight out. We, Please do. Uh, we began a, uh, an employee campaign to have people think about investing in their own workplace and to launch that campaign two years in a row. I uh, did a music video with um, a couple of other doctors on the staff that, um, you know, it just showed people that I'm willing to take risk. I'm willing to put myself out there because, after all, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We all have our passions. We all have our willingness to take chance. And, and I think that, that having had that experience allows me to take those risks. Yeah, I, I still stand by, given what you've described, that you are a lifelong musician. You're just being modest. And yes, that might not be your primary career, but uh, of course, you're still passionate about it. I also love music a lot, but um, uh, it's really, I, I think that other side is very important. Now, that video of yours that you were talking about, is that public or is that just something that you showed to the other staff in the hospital or the yeah, healthcare I, system? I hope it's not public. <laughs> so otherwise, I was going to point our <laughs> listeners to perhaps uh, YouTube somewhere and, and doing that. But, you know, that, that final point that you made is so critical. 
about, you know, willing, being willing to take some calculated risks. And also, as a leader, I imagine that you really have to do these things and embody some of these traits yourself in order to empower others. They want to see a leader who does these things. Yeah, and, and uh, quite honestly, uh, this is the first time I've done a job of this scale, and so I've made mistakes, and I've come clean and talked about them because that's life, and we all make mistakes. And if we don't learn from them and we don't see that making a mistake isn't the end of the world, we won't try again. And so I think it's very important. Yeah, I think. Can you share perhaps one of the mistakes that you made and how you learned from it? Yeah, it was, it was uh, maybe three months into the job. And I was trying to start to talk to people about what values are important to me. Ethics, morals, respect for each other, tolerance for different lifestyles and qualities. And so I met with some of the folks who work in environmental services here. Mm -hmm. And I said, tell me one, at the end of our discussion, I said, tell me one thing, no matter how little, that could make a difference in your job. Just one thing. And needless to say, they hadn't been asked this, certainly by a president of a hospital before, and so no one really wanted to volunteer. And so I poked and prodded, and finally someone sheepishly raised his hand and gave me an example. And frankly, it sounded very reasonable to me. It was not unreasonable. And so after that, I met with his manager and said, hey, I heard this story, and this seems reasonable, and can we operationalize this, and what's the downside? End of story. Well, not quite. About two months later, mm -hmm. My secretary told me that an employee was in my office demanding to meet with me. And I came downstairs, and it was the gentleman who raised his hand. And it turns out that he came into my office and said, you know, ever since I said that, I've not been treated well. I've been given worse shifts, worse assignments. Uh, I've never had a bad review, and I got a bad review. And it turns out that because I spoke up to you, it got me in trouble. Well... That certainly wasn't my intent, but I obviously hadn't planned this well enough to think that there could be a downside. Yeah. I was celebrating personally from the fact that I'd gotten someone to come clean to the president. That was the wrong way to do it, and I talked about that. I love your attitude. We all learn. We're all human. It's been such a pleasure, Dr. Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.